Well, if you've been reading through your Bibles this year, uh, certainly if you've been uh, following the the Ray Comfort plan that we've uh, semi-adopted as a fellowship, then you'll know that we'll be well into the book of Leviticus now. So, um, And that's where we come to this morning. It's one of those books that hopefully, if uh, you're like Joy and I, as you read through it, the question is asked, isn't this a bit repetitive? Because you seem to go over a lot of the same material. Um, and yes, it is, intentionally so. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But before we do, let's uh, bow our hearts and just commit this, this time of study to the Lord. Well, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word once again. We thank you that it is living and powerful. Oh, and Lord, we recognize, Lord, how we need to be changed by your word. Father, we live in a world that is so subject to change. Lord, subject to different opinions and views and thoughts and ideas. And yet, Lord, we have, in the midst of all these things, the solid foundation, the immovable rock of your word. And Lord, we build our lives on your word and on the living word, Jesus Christ. So Father, as we turn to these pages now, give us a greater understanding, we pray. Help us to see that even in these passages in the Old Testament that may on the surface seem repetitive, Lord, help us to see that there is great treasure there for us to enrich us, to strengthen us, and to reveal more of your amazing grace. And so, Lord, we commit this time of study to you. Give us ears to hear and hearts that are ready to receive, we ask now, in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. So, in the previous session, we uh, concluded the book of Exodus, really taking us from chapter 13, the Red Sea Crossing, and uh, all of the things associated with it. And then looking at the giving of the law. The law was given as a standard by which Israel were to get right or stay right with God. This was God's standard. But interestingly enough, the very next book in the Bible is Leviticus. And in Leviticus, we find a whole load of rules and uh, ceremonial practices and offerings, etc., that are put in place for when you break the law. Clearly, God understood that although this law had been given, there was no way the children of Israel were going to be able to keep it. And it's very significant that the very next portion of scripture we come to is God's remedy in kind, as it were, as to how Israel was to deal with the fact that they couldn't keep this law that God had given. It's interesting that back in Exodus, as the people are being presented with these rules and laws, they say everything that God has given and everything that God has said we will do. Of course, we're very much like that. It's a kind of a Simon Peter situation. As Simon Peter said, Lord, you know, even if everybody else were to betray you and to run away and leave you, I wouldn't. And of course, we're very much like that. You know, that we think we can keep the standard by a bit of effort. And the reality is that we can't. And Leviticus just reminds us very clearly 
um, that we cannot obtain to the standard that God has set. So in Leviticus, what we really see is the remedy for breaking the law. So when we turn to the book of Leviticus, one of the questions we can ask and probably should ask is, why should we study Leviticus? You know, there are many, many churches that don't even look at this book. They don't study it. They don't care for it. A lot of churches consider themselves as New Testament churches. New Testament Christians is a phrase that's sometimes used. So why should we look at these things? Well, firstly, Romans 15.4 tells us, For whatsoever things were written aforetime, were written for our learning, that we, through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. So, whatsoever things, even the book of Leviticus, is there for our learning. And God has a real plan and a purpose in our understanding of these things. 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17 says that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. So all scripture, including Leviticus, including these portions that we read through in the first um, eight chapters or so, particularly of Leviticus, that do seem repetitive. Why are we given these things? Well, it's, it's there by inspiration of God. God himself inspired that which we're looking at here. So that we may be complete, thoroughly furnished, having everything that we need. Chuck Misler makes this comment. He says, here is a book that is ostensibly of special interest only to the religious antiquarian, most regarded with indifference or doubt. And it certainly seems distant from any relevance to our current horizon for most of us. So it may come as a surprise to discover that there are a number of biblical experts who regard the book of Leviticus as the most important book of the Bible. Now that may come as a surprise to you to hear that. But Chuck Mizzler is not alone. J. Vernon McGee says, If it were possible to get the message of this book into the hearts of all people who are trying to be religious, all cults and isms would end. A few more quotes in a moment. But it's interesting to know the comparison. In Exodus, God speaks out of Sinai. From the mountain, people are fearful to approach. But in Leviticus, he speaks out of the tabernacle where people are encouraged to approach. In Exodus, man is brought near to God. In Leviticus, man is kept near to God. In Exodus, man is exposed as helpless. In Leviticus, God is revealed as the helper. Exodus leaves man condemned because of this holy law that God has established. Leviticus leaves man justified. In Exodus, the Lord pardons, but in Leviticus, he purifies. In Exodus, we have God's approach to man. Leviticus describes man's approach to God. You know, and it may come as a surprise that we can't just approach God how we choose. One of the most amazing things I find as we look around the religious landscape of the world 
is that people think they can come before a holy God in whichever way suits them. You know, even in our culture, with our queen and our monarch, there are rules, there's etiquette, there's certain things that have to be observed before you go and approach the queen. Why do we think we can go before the God of the universe as just as if he's our buddy? In Exodus, the Lord is the saviour. In Leviticus, he's the sanctifier. Genesis, we've gone through. We've seen there that man was ruined because of his disobedience. In Exodus, we see man redeemed, rescued. And this wonderful typology that we see there. But in Leviticus, we see man worshipping God. Leviticus is a handbook for worship. Now, the authorship, well, no real question about it. Moses, round about 1686 or so BC, uh, is the author, camped around Mount Sinai, the bottom of the mountain. There's over 56 affirmations of Moses' authorship of this book. Leviticus is actually quoted over 40 times in the New Testament. And Jesus himself quotes from this book and describes it to Moses in Matthew 8. Uh, regarding the cleansing of the lepers, in John 7.22, regarding circumcision, and then generally for the whole Torah, ascribing it to Moses in Luke 24, verse 27. So, no real contest, no debate on this. Um, There were those that tried to suggest that there were various authors for the Torah. Competent scholarship has completely shredded those those views and ideas now. Uh, Moses was the author. The title for the book, Leviticus, actually from the Greek, it means pertaining to the Levites. Uh, is what the, the name means. Uh, the Levites, of course, were chosen by God to serve. They were responsible for a number of things, particularly the sanctuary, which we looked at very briefly at the end of the last session. They were, regard- they were responsible for the teaching of the people and also for the worship. Select Levites were then appointed as priests for the nation. Originally God had said that the whole nation were to be a nation of priests, but because of that situation with the golden calf and everything else, God then selects the tribe of Levi as the tribe that are going to be his priests to intercede on behalf of the nation before their God. We have, of course, the... Torah, as we've mentioned, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Genesis is the book of beginnings. Exodus, the birth of the nation. Leviticus, we really see the law of the nation now uh, being explained and unpacked and everything else. Numbers will deal with the wilderness wanderings. And then Deuteronomy, the laws are going to be reviewed. There will be three separate sermons when we get to Deuteronomy and review that. Now, just to change tactics for a moment... Back in the 16th century, there was a Jewish rabbi, Moses Cordovero, um, who made this incredible discovery. And he commented and said, the secrets of the Torah are revealed in the skipping of letters. Now, this is something that was discovered long before computers were developed and designed. And yet, of course, in today's culture, we found that with the advent of computers, we've got 
various tools enable us to see these things. We find that um, this uh, quote is uh, given us, um, this actually is a chap called Rips who was invo- involved in the uh, Bible code as it's uh, been uh, referred to. And we just have a sentence here. It says, Rips explained that each code is a case of adding every fourth letter to form a word. Now, that's a sentence that makes sense. And what it's saying is that you add each fourth letter and it would form a word. If you take, and you see the highlighted letters there, if we take that, you can see that actually every fourth letter, if we would take it, you start with the R, count forward, and then the next the fourth letter is the E, you can't forward another four, you get the A, and you end up with a grammatically intelligent sentence, which is read the code. That's how these equidistant letter sequences work. And we find them throughout the Bible. And it's really just evidence of design, because so many of these we find intertwined in key portions of Scripture. Interestingly enough, when we go to the book of Genesis, that's Genesis chapter 1, uh, looking at Hebrew. Hebrew, again, reads from the right to the left. So this is, uh, uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, is how we'd translate that in the English. And if you remember, I mentioned when we were looking at Genesis, we have this Aleph and a Tau there. That's an Alpha and Omega, if we were to put it into the Greek. So it's really, in the beginning, God, it's Elohim, the Alpha and the Omega, created the heavens and the earth. That's that first sentence of, of uh, the book of Genesis. But if we take the first Tau in the text, then count forward 49 letters, we actually come to a Vav in the Hebrew, which is the equivalent of our O. Then counting forward another 49 letters, we come to a Hebrew letter Resh, which is equivalent to our R. And then finally count forward another 49 letters, and we come to the H, which is equivalent to an H. Um, if you put all that together, what you find is those letters at 49 letter sequences spell the word Torah. Now, okay, on its own, you could argue that could appear just by random chance. Um, it's interesting, what do we do with it? Not really sure at this stage. But what is interesting is, when we go to the book of Exodus, exactly the same thing happens again. Now it starts to become a bit more interesting. It's way beyond random already at this point. Again, all at 49 letter sequences. If we go to Leviticus, it doesn't happen. Okay, well we put part that for a moment. But we notice that when we come to numbers, it does happen. But strangely, this time it happens in reverse. Why? Well, we come to Deuteronomy, and the same thing again. Exactly the same thing. At 49 letter distance sequences, we have the same thing again in reverse. So if we look at that together, Genesis and Exodus, we have Torah written correctly forward, as it were. And Numbers and Deuteronomy, we have Torah, but written in reverse. All at 49 letter intervals. Now that just prompts us to ask the question again, well, what about Leviticus? Because it seems to be pointing in one direction, doesn't it? Towards this central book of the five. When we go back to Leviticus... We find if we go to the first yod, uh, or y, uh, and then count forward at seven letter intervals, which is the square root of 49, 
we have Yahweh or Jehovah. The Tetragrammaton, as the Jews refer to it, the holy, unpronounceable name of God. Now, when we put that all together, we see a wonderful picture develop because what we really see there is that the Torah always points to God. Now, what does that prove? It's strong evidence for design because if you try to just manufacture that, it's incredibly difficult. If you try to write a sentence and actually encrypt something underneath, in the, certainly the, the, the context and the way it's been done here, very, very difficult. Beyond really uh, any credible suggestion that it was just uh, a random occurrence. It's been designed. But it also just seems to suggest here that there's something very special about the book of Leviticus. Question then. What's the most important thing in the world? Well, let me ask that another way. What's the greatest blessing that you could have? If we think about that, there's probably a number of things that we may put forward as candidates. Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, if I had my choice of all the blessings I could conceive of, I would choose perfect conformity to the Lord Jesus. Or in one word, holiness. That was Spurgeon's take on what is the most important thing that you could possibly get or take out of this life. Jack Mizzler said, we want Jesus to solve our problems and to carry our burdens, but we don't want him to control our lives and change our character. But eight times God says to his people, be holy, for I am holy. And this, of course, we then find is the main theme of the book of Leviticus. Holy, the word holy occurs 94 times in 77 verses throughout this book. In contrast, uncleanness occurs 129 times in 96 verses. And really the central fulcrum, if you like, of the book of Leviticus is Leviticus 11.44, where God says there, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And so we see this underlying theme of holiness. And going back to that equidistant letter sequence, what is the Torah all really pointing to? Well, the fact that we should be holy. God's people should be a holy people. Jonathan Edwards said, He that sees the beauty of holiness or true moral good sees the greatest and most important thing in the world. Hebrews twelve fourteen puts it this way. Follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. You see, here we find that holiness is linked actually to the saving of souls. If we ourselves are not holy, if we're not set apart for God, how can we be effective in evangelism? You know, we see a number of people, and sadly they uh, often make the, the TV, don't they? They get the headlines that profess to be Christians, profess to be godly, and then their lifestyle tells a very different story. And the world just looks and laughs. And of course, Christians are labelled as hypocrites. First Peter chapter 1, 15 and 16 says, But as he which has called you is holy, 
So be you holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. Peter just reminding us, really, of what this book is telling us. In Hebrew, the word holy, or kadosh, uh, is that which is set apart, marked off, that which is different, implies separateness, apartness, sacredness. God's will, I mentioned this before, we're told in First Thessalonians 4, verse 3, what God's will is. What's God's will in any situation? Whatever that be. What's God's will in your home situation, your family? What's God's will in your job? In the situations regarding your health, my health? What's any reason, what's, what's the God's will in any of those things? Well, it's this. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you should abstain from fornication. It's really saying that God's desire for us is that we be set apart. Everything that God allows in our lives, everything that goes on in and around us, is for this one purpose of setting us apart for God. You know, God does not need us in regard to the salvation of souls. God can do that quite capably without our assistance, without our help. That doesn't negate our responsibility, of course. We are told to be witnesses and so on. But God doesn't need us. God chooses to use us in the things that he does. And that's a great blessing. But most importantly, God's will for us is that we be set apart. And this isn't just something that God wants trophies to put in a museum. This is because God knows this is the very best for us. Very much like Spurgeon himself had concluded. Interesting, in uh, Romans 12.1, I'll mention this scripture again later, but there Paul says, I beg you therefore, brothers, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. That word reasonable in the Greek, uh, logikas, or logical. It's your logical service to give everything to God without holding anything back. It's logical. Why? Well, because your life will be so much better for it. And you'll be an honor and a glory to your Lord and Saviour too. You see, the Sabbath was holy because God had set it apart for his people. The priests were holy because they were set apart to minister to the Lord. Their garments were holy and could not be duplicated for common use. The, the things they wore when they were ministering were only for that purpose. Totally set apart. The tithe was holy, set apart for the things of God. Anything that God said was holy had to be treated differently from the common things of life. If you're going to make points from this morning, point number one. If you're a Christian, you are called to be holy. You must be different from this world. The Bible makes it very clear that we were once in darkness. The light of the world came to light our way, to bring us from darkness to light. Paul urges us, therefore, to walk as children of light. 
from Ephesians 5 verse 8. Another quote from Chuck Misler, I love this, he says, Holiness isn't a luxury, it's a necessity. How many Christians think that holiness is just something that we can opt into if we choose? Holiness isn't a luxury, it's a necessity. It's not limited to the Jews in ancient Israel. Leviticus instructs New Testament Christians how to appreciate holiness and appropriate it into their everyday lives. And that's another one of these reasons why this book is so important to us. God's predicament, of course, is that God himself is a holy God. And we don't really fully understand what that means. What does holy truly mean? Well, God hates sin. You know, you imagine a tin of paint, white paint. The moment you drop one speck of dirt into that paint, it ceases to become pure white paint. And that's a very poor analogy. But God is so pure, so holy. And we have no real concept of how God feels about sin apart from that which we discover in this book. Well, God does love us and wants to forgive us. But because God is holy, he can't just forget sin. It's not as if God can just turn a blind eye to it and say, oh, well, don't worry then. Socrates, amazingly, some 500 years before Christ, came to this kind of incredible deduction, stroke conclusion. He said, it may be that deity can forgive sins, but I don't see how. What incredible insight, saying, you know, it may be that if there is a God that is pure, that is holy, that is all of these things, it may be that that deity could forgive sins, but how? How could a God forgive sins and remain just? Incredible insight. Well, of course, God's solution. Well, because man was dead in trespasses and sins, and we'd all fallen short of his righteous standard, God himself became the payment in full. Propitiation is the word the Bible uses. John uses that in his first letter. Propitiation is payment in full for our sin. And that meant giving his life in our place. John 3.16, so well known, but to sum it up so well, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. It's been put recently, we owed a price we could not pay, so he paid a debt he did not owe. The root of the problem goes back to a tree, no pun intended, uh, in the Garden of Eden, where God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may eat freely, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat of it, for in the day that you eat thereof you shall surely die. The incredible grace of God. People look at that and think, yeah, it's just judgment. No, no, no. That is grace. God doing something absolutely wonderful there. God's mercy being demonstrated. God says, if you sin, if you transgress, if you cross that line, the punishment for your sin will be 
death. I'm sure Satan, at the moment that was pronounced, thought, ha got them. Didn't realise, of course, what God had in mind. Because in Leviticus 17.11, we'll read when we get there, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. In other words, to die required the shedding of blood. And I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes an atonement for the soul. In other words, God has said in the Garden of Eden, if you sin, if you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, if you sin, effectively your blood must be shed. But then what God does, or God is saying, blood must be shed. And God then says he will accept the blood of these innocent substitutes because these two animals are slain, their skins are given to Adam and Eve. Their blood is shed so that Adam and Eve's will be spared. And from that point on, throughout the Old Testament, we see these being passed down and passed down and passed down from family to family, from generation to generation, until we get now to the time of the law and this book of Leviticus, as everything is now neatly uh, wrapped up and codified for us. Blood, of course, is representative of life. When we celebrate the communion together, the body speaks of the... Um, the sin that Jesus took upon himself, the wrath of God, but the blood is speaking of that new life, the resurrection. Hebrews 9.22 tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. There is no other way. Back in Genesis, we're told there that the eyes of both of them were open. This is after they'd eaten of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. They tried to cover over this religious attempt to try and get right with God, to cover over their iniquity, their sin. Verse 21, Adam, uh, unto Adam also and his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. And again, that required the shedding of blood of those animals. So God initiates the first blood sacrifice, the death of an innocent substitute through the shedding of its blood. In place of the guilty, life was required, life was given. Justice is thus satisfied. However, this is just an atonement. In Hebrew, it's the kafir, is the the word for atonement. It means to cover, and that's all this is. It's a covering is a temporary solution looking for the ultimate solution which would later come at Calvary. Hebrews 10, 1 to 4, tells us really the temporary nature of these things because he says, the writer to the Hebrews, for the law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. In other words, those sacrifices can't make you perfect. Well, then would they not cease to be offered? But that the worshippers once purged should have had no more conscience of sins. The problem with the, the shedding of blood and so on, it doesn't purge the conscience. But in those sacrifices, there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls, 
and goats should take away sins. So it was just a temporary solution. So already as we start to get in a moment into the book of Leviticus, we see that all of this is looking forward to Jesus Christ. The purpose then of the book of Leviticus is to teach us God's character. If we're to be holy as he is holy, we need to know what it means to be holy. And the book of Leviticus really is the explanation. The book of Leviticus will drive home the nature of sin and the price that is to be paid for redemption. And redemption just means to purchase back, to buy back. Essentially, the book is about God's grace. That is, in the word, unmerited favour. Without the shedding of blood, as we've seen, there is no remission. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission. Over the last week, a number of people have said to me, uh, are you alright? You know, we uh, get that question very often. And most of us will answer very often in the affirmative. We're often apt, though, to deny our spiritual condition. Because sometimes, you know, we, we put on a brave face and a physical side of things, and we think, well, yeah, I'm not too bad. And we tend to think of it as a comparative analysis. So we'll look at somebody else, maybe who's in a worse condition, and think, well, actually, yeah, I'm all right compared to them. But when it comes to a spiritual situation, and somebody says, are you all right? Yeah, we all think, yeah, I'm alright, because we do the same thing, exactly the same thing. We look at ourselves compared to somebody else who we think is a worse sinner than we are. So we think, yeah, I'm, I'm not that bad, actually. Just as we do with our, our health, and we try and often play it down, I'm not that bad. Because we look at somebody else, we try and get some sort of frame of reference. It's far worse, of course, when we deny, or even worse, probably, are ignorant of our spiritual condition. When we think that we're okay. When we're not that bad. And the problem of most people in the world is that they think they're alright. I love the, the good person test that Ray Comfort does when we ask people, do you think you're a good person? And almost everybody will answer, Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a good person. And then you just ask them a few questions, taking them through the law, letting them see that we are far, far from being good people. Because we're not judging each other against each other's standard. We're judging each other against God's standard. You see, the book of Leviticus shows us God's view of sin and the colossal cost required to atone for it. You see, we trivialize sin so often. We play it down. More than any other book we hear through Leviticus, God speaking. 36 times we read the phrase, the Lord spoke unto Moses. 
The majority of the book actually is God speaking. That's another reason why this book is so special. This is God's voice. And through this we see, of course, God's heart for his own people. We're going to see the priesthood uh, explained and uh, detailed. Of course, in the Old Testament, the people had their priesthood. In the New Testament, the people are the priesthood, the body of Christ, the church. 1 Peter 2, 9. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people that you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. When you read through Leviticus and you see what the priests had to do, and then you realize that we've been called to be priests, it's a kind of a big, big wake-up call for us. There's five basic themes really that run through the book. It's that God is a holy God. The priest who was a holy priest, the people were to be a holy people. The land was to be a holy land. And they would have a holy saviour. A brief uh, breakdown of the book. You can see there, we're not going to go through all this in detail now. Um, The first five, in fact, probably up to chapter nine, really. We're dealing with the offerings and the setting apart for the priesthood, the anointing of the priests and everything else, getting ready. And lots of laws and rules and regulations are being laid down by God. And we'll look at some of these details in just a moment. When we get to chapter 10, and we'll pick this up next time, one of the most important lessons regarding worship in the entire Bible. It's an incredible portion of uh, the, the book of Leviticus. Uh, we'll then get various laws about the clean, the unclean, the circumcision, laws of leprosy, ceremonial hygiene laws, and then various other laws regarding the Day of Atonement, laws regarding blood, the moral laws, and so on. The Feast of Israel in chapter 23 is a very important chapter in helping to understand the feasts. So many important things are, are laid out for us there. And the book of Leviticus gives us so much insight into some of the other things that we then find later revealed in scripture. One of the things we do find is that this book is a book very much for the church. Let's um, jump straight into chapter 1. We're not going to be able to go verse by verse, don't intend to. We're just going to look at the five offerings that are mentioned and just comment briefly on these five this morning and then we'll, we'll draw to a close. These five offerings, we have the burnt offering. It's really speaking of the complete surrender. It's ultimately looking at Jesus and the fact that he gave himself completely. Of course, the New Testament equivalent to that is Romans 12.2. We looked at that earlier, that we should present our bodies as a living sacrifice. That if we are to be his, we are to give ourselves completely to God, not holding anything back, just as Jesus gave himself completely. We find the grain offering, sometimes referred to as the meat offering or the meal offering. It's really speaking of offering the best. It's talking of the the sinless perfection and the humanity of Jesus Christ, offering himself as the best. 
And interestingly enough, there's a, a lovely tie here because of the grain being offered and the first fruits is implied in this as well. That we are the first fruits to God, the very best. I mean, just think of that for a second, that God says that we are to be first fruits unto, unto him. So we're to be the best of his produce. Well, how does that stack up when we look at our own lives? Do our lives reflect the work that God is doing in us? We then get the peace offering. Really speaking of the fact that Christ is our peace. He's the one that has brought us peace. This shalom, this reconciliation with God. Peace, the whole idea, shalom, from the various Hebrew uh, root verbs and words and things. Uh, it just means to pay and to fulfill. That's the idea. And that's why you have this, this idea of peace. Because there's a payment required and a fulfillment. And that's what Christ did. It's referred to also sometimes as the fellowship offering. We then get the sin offering, which is to atone for our sin before God. And there's a number of different facets of these things. And then the trespass offering. Two separate offerings mentioned here regarding sin in a sense. But the second one is very much to atone for the effects of our sin on others. Now I'm going to tell you up front here. You'll read about in a moment, we'll look at some of the text. But you'll see some of the things that were... um, required as part of these offerings. Sometimes it was to be a bullock that was offered or a lamb or a ram. For some of the offerings, for example, let's take the burnt offering uh, or the grain offering, there were various levels, depending on how much you had, how much you could offer. If you were poor, you weren't expected to offer something of, as, of higher value as somebody who was rich. But you were to give whatever you could. But it's interesting to note, there's two of the offerings specifically where there is no um, concession made. And that's the peace offering and the trespass offering. And I think that's really significant. We'll, we'll look at them briefly when we get there, but just to mention up front, the, the peace offering, there is no shortcut to our peace with God. There is no way that we can get around the fact that it took, took Christ offer himself in our place. You know, it took the same to purchase my peace with God as it did to purchase your peace. It doesn't matter of our standing, of our wealth, or our position. There's no change in the, the amount that can be offered. The trespass offering also. The sin offering, we'll find that there are a couple of levels uh, of offering that can be uh, offered depending on the different situations, uh, various things that are laid down in the text here for us. And it's interesting to note that there are mentioned in, or, or certainly alluded to in Scripture different levels of sin. I know sometimes we, we hear people say, oh, well, a sin is a sin, all sins the same. No, it's not quite the same. Because Jesus even speaks of uh, those you know, who had the greater sin. Okay, so there is clearly a measure, and God is a just God, and will uh, judge and just uh, judge everybody fairly. 
And the sin offering, therefore, we find that there is a scale that some people um, who can afford it are expected to give certain things. If you can't afford it, then there's a, a slightly different offering that can be offered. The trespass offering, though, which speaks very much of the effect of our sin on other people, and it speaks of making restitution. There is only one offering, regardless of your financial position. And I think that's interesting, because it just drives home the effect that our sin has on other people. So often we think that our sin doesn't affect other people, because often it can be things that are behind closed doors. Maybe things that nobody else knows about, or very few other people know about. Maybe it can be just things in our thought life. And we think it doesn't affect anybody else. Well, I think this trespass offering highlights that the effect of our sin on others is so much greater than we can possibly imagine. And it's actually what we read in the New Testament about if one part suffers, all parts suffer. And you know, I know that can be talking certainly in terms of a um, uh, a health or a spiritual warfare type of situation can be used in those examples, but very much so in sin. That if one member of a, a body of believers is allowing sin in their life, it can have an effect on the rest of the body that maybe is not perceived or seen on the surface, but those effects are there. Let's have a look briefly through those. We're going to spend a little bit longer in the, the first one here, and then we'll, we'll look uh, and summarize the others as well. So, the Lord called Moses and spoke unto him out of the tabernacle of the congregation, saying, just again that Hebrew title, and he called. That's what the, the, the Hebrew title of the book is, because God calls. And it is the book of the called. The book of the church, the ecclesia, the called out ones. Another way we can entitle this book is, it's the book of the church. That's going by the Hebrew title of the book, very interesting in itself. No longer, of course, is God, as we said, speaking from Mount Sinai, which represents the law, which is this God who was unapproachable, but now speaking out of the tabernacle. Of course, we're reminded that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. God with us, Emmanuel. So the Lord called unto Moses, spoke spoke unto him out of the tabernacle of the congregation, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say unto them, If any man of you bring an offering unto the Lord. I just want to highlight this. If any man. The onus is on the individual. And you'll see this with these offerings that are prescribed here. And this really, again, is speaking of our worship, of that which we bring to the Lord, of our own lives. If any man, the onus is on you. You know, what I do is between me and God. But what you do is between you and God. And you can't rely on what somebody else does. You can't rely on your husband or your wife or your parents. Since Eden, this offering for sin was made by the shedding of blood. Everyone has the choice to avail themselves of God's prescribed offering. So if any man of you bring an offering unto the Lord, you shall bring your offering of the cattle, even 
of the herd and of the flock. Okay, so cattle, sheep were permitted here. Excluded were animals of prey and carnivorous animals. Why? Well, because they couldn't typify Christ. Because those animals live by feeding on others. They, they, they survive by the death of others. And that doesn't typify Christ in any way. That's why these specific animals are highlighted here. We're told if his offering be a burnt sacrifice of the herd, let him offer a male without blemish. He shall offer it of his own voluntary will at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation before the Lord. So now this is the burnt sacrifice that we're looking at specifically here. The first of the five offerings, a male, notice, and of course without blemish. We see straight away, speaking of Christ, this is what this offering really ultimately is looking. Only a pure, undefiled substitute would be acceptable. And notice also that this offering would be voluntary. How amazing it was that our Saviour willingly went to the cross for us. There's implication here that repentance is required in bringing this sacrifice. It's not something they were commanded to do. It's something that you would do once your heart was stirred at the door as well they were to bring the sacrifice to the door of the tabernacle only one way this can be done there is only one way to approach God to offer these things and of course Jesus is that door and he shall put his hand upon the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him and he shall kill the bullock before the Lord um, and the priests, Aaron's sons, shall bring the blood and sprinkle the blood round about upon the altar that is by the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. Just think about this. Every time you sin and you go to the Lord and you say, Oh, Father, forgive me, I, I've done this, I've done this, or whatever it is, and you know, and you go with a repentant heart, how different would it be? Because we talk about repentance. Repentance means to turn the other way. How much more impact would that have? If every time you had to take a perfect animal, take this perfect bullock, you, you take it to the door of the tabernacle, to the tent of meeting, and you lay your hand upon this animal, identifying yourself with it, knowing that this animal is going to die, its blood is going to be shed, so that yours doesn't have to be. And then as you kill this animal and you shed the blood of this animal knowing that that animal is having its blood shed so that that life, that, that punishment for sin which is death is being offered before God to make an atonement. How much different would that make the way we live our lives? The problem is we there was a Christian singer called Steve Camp some years ago who wrote a wonderful song called Cheap Grace. He said, just some of the lyrics of the song were that we water down the blood he shed. We say we've given all, but we've hardly bled. You know, and we, we talk of repentance, we talk of living holy lives and all these kind of things. 
Well, how much difference would it be if you were walking away from the tabernacle with that blood on your hands? And you knew that was because of your sin. This um, offering, the Hebrew is this Ola, is that which ascends. It's a sweet savour to God. It's pleasing to God. Why? Because everything was being offered. Ephesians 5.2 says, Walk in love as Christ also loved us and has given himself as an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savour. Jesus, in your place, has done this once and for all so that you no longer have to go before a tabernacle and take an animal and shed the blood of that animal. Jesus gave himself so that his blood could be shed. Again, offered willingly. But there would be a cost involved. This male without blemish. And again, as I say, laying your hands upon that animal. That personal identification. It's designating one to take your place. The whole idea in scripture of laying on of hands, which is something that's so abused in the church today in so many ways, is all to do, it's very consistent all through, whether it's with an animal in sacrifice or whatever, it's all about designating one to take your place. That's why in the New Testament, Acts 6 verse 6, Acts 13 verse 3 and so on, where we read of the apostles and the disciples laying hands on someone, they were laying their hands on someone, designating someone to take their place, to go out in this work of ministry. It was as if they were going themselves. And they were committed to pray and to support and everything else for those individuals. But that's what this whole laying of hands is about. Just again, think of the impact. This atonement then to cover. There was sprinkle, this blood, scattering abundantly in large quantities. And thus the offerer would become covered by the life, by the blood of the one sacrificed. There's a lovely picture in that as well. And he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into his pieces. That idea of flaying means that this offering is totally uncovered. Everything exposed. The inward parts are exposed. No protection from God's view. Everything laid open before God. And we read, The sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put fire upon the altar and lay the wood in order upon the fire. And the priest, Aaron's son, shall lay the parts, the head and the fat, in order upon the wood that is on the fire which is upon the altar. But his inwards and his legs shall he wash in water, and the priest shall burn all on the altar to be a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire of a sweet savour unto the Lord. Interestingly, everything here is done decently and in order. First Corinthians 14.33, your reference for that. God is not the author of confusion. Why are we told about this head and the fat and all these things, the inwards and the legs? Again, that which is outwards, the inwards. 
Well, really we're seeing the inner life here being exposed. This is why this offering specifically speaks of the complete sacrifice of Christ. His whole life was given, the sinless life of Jesus given over in place of ours. The legs, I was really speaking of the walk, the inwards, the heart of Christ, were washed. They were totally clean. And then all burnt. The perfection of Christ was offered in our place. This fire again is burning. Just total commitment. Chuck Misler says, We cannot give our bodies to God and reserve our hearts. I would actually say that we can spin that the other way too. We cannot give our hearts to God and reserve our bodies. We're also told that this offering was to be done northward, on the sides of the altar northward. Why northward? Well, when you look at the topography of Mount Moriah, where Abraham took Isaac and eventually Jesus himself would be taken to be crucified, we find that it's northward. So we have the Temple Mount here, and it's northward. All of these things point to that which Christ accomplished. We're told it should wash the inwards, the legs, the water, and so on. And they're all laid out here. This offering is totally disfigured. And it's interesting because if we look in Isaiah 52, we read as many were astonished at thee. His visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. This is speaking of Christ's sacrifice for us. Jesus was mangled, for want of a better expression, for us, just as this burnt offering was. Verse 14 says, If the burnt sacrifice for his offering to the Lord be of fowls, of birds, then he shall bring his offering of the turtle doves or of young pigeons. So now we're told that there's another option. There's provision made here for the poor. So all can become beneficiaries of what Christ has accomplished. Mary and Joseph, by the way, offered this in Luke 2.24. This was the offering they offered. It's interesting to know, because a lot of people, again, get very confused with the details of the whole um, nativity uh, situation. And they tell you that the, uh, the three kings arrived at the stable. Well, again, they were magi, they weren't three. And they didn't go to the stable. How do we know that? Well, what was one of the gifts they brought? Gold. If they'd been brought gold at the stable, Mary and Joseph would have been well been able to afford a bullock. But they didn't have the resource or the money to do that. So some weeks later when they go up to Jerusalem, according to the law, to offer the sacrifice, what do we find they offer? They offer these turtle doves and young pigeons. This is the option that they go for. Why pigeon? Well, pigeon in the, the Hebrew is ben yonah. I mean, it just simply means the sons of the dove. Again, a male is required. The dove, of course, symbolizes peace. The dove is so pure and so gentle, yet here is subject to violence. Speaking, of course, of Christ. Isaiah 53, 9. Because he had done no violence, neither was there any deceit in his mouth, we read. The feathers were removed again to expose, to lay all open. And we were told that this this bird was to be cleaved, but not 
divided. Not a bone was to be broken. So many types and shadows. The why question. Why is this book so graphic? Why all the bloodshed? Because of sin, as I said earlier, that we so often trivialize. Some think nothing of sin, and the God will not really punish it. This book lays out the full horror of sin, and the wrath of God in regard to it. But we see also the mercy of God, and that he loved us so much that he became the offering necessary to satisfy his own wrath. The you question. How do you fit into all of this? Well, God sees Christ as the only one who can satisfy him for your sins. Have you seen Christ like that yet? Have you seen Christ as the only one that can satisfy God for your sin? And we have this strange notion, don't we? And it's interesting, you know, sometimes when people get sick and so on, they're, they're kind of... Um, there's this idea of, oh, maybe God's judging me. What, so Christ didn't pay for it all? Really? I'm not saying that, that you know, we, we do know that whatever a, a man sows, that he reaps. And there are warnings in scripture about how we live our lives and so on. But to suggest that, you know, you might do something wrong and then that day God is going to cause something bad to happen to you. No, 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 Christ paid for your sin on the cross. All of it. You can't have a bad day at work and then feel a bit better. Well, that's because I did this or I spoke you know, sharply to my husband or wife this morning or I looked at something I shouldn't have seen. And You, know, you can't then expect something bad to happen and then, okay, well, that's it. We're back even again now. That's not the way it works. That's almost like saying that we can then pay for some of our sin. And No, no, no. Just because Christ died in the past, on the cross he died for every sin that we have ever committed, past, present and future. Nothing we can do can ever add to that. Christ is the only one that can satisfy God for our sin. You know, do you have the sacrifice of Christ between you and your sins? We must make sure we have. Again, have you designated Christ as your substitute? Again, it's the most important issue in the world. Just briefly look then at some of these other offerings in conclusion. The meal offering, um, no blood is to be shed here. This is a grain offering, fine flour. It speaks to the person of Jesus. Jesus himself in John six forty eight said, I am the bread of life. And it's this flour that would have no lumps to be completely ground out. Jesus was the perfect man, perfectly balanced Again, that quote from Jonathan Edwards, the evangelist, he said, uh, He that sees the beauty of holiness, or true moral good, sees the greatest and most important thing in the world. Oil was also to be used. It speaks of the spirit in the life of Jesus. This oil was to be put upon it, just as Jesus was baptized of the spirit. Oil was to be mingled with this offering. Jesus was born of the spirit, of course. Pour oil on it, and Jesus was led of the Spirit. And then with oil, acted Jesus acted by 
the Holy Spirit, being led in every way in his life by him. Frankincense also is to be used. It speaks of the character of Jesus. It exudes fragrance when crushed or burnt, etc. That really should speak of every Christian. You know, when you crush an orange, what do you get? Orange juice, yeah? When you crush an apple, what do you get? Apple juice. When you crush a Christian, what should you get? Christ. Fire, here, not symbolic of hell in this context, but speaking rather of this purifying or refining by fire. And the Father, of course, doing this in the life of the Son. Jesus, according to Oswald Chambers, makes his comment, Jesus turned innocence into obedience by a series of moral choices. I love that phrase. From the point of the transfiguration, Jesus you know, could have gone back to heaven. In many ways, he'd accomplished a big part of what he'd come to do to prove that a human being could live a sinless life by following the Father, by following God, walking with the Spirit. But Jesus chooses to come back down the mountain. And he comes back down into that valley and heals the man oppressed by the devil. Very much speaking of the rest of his ministry there. This offering... There's a number of options. It could be baked in the oven or it could be baked in the pan. Again, if you couldn't afford the first option, there's other ways it could be done. Cheaper options available. You see, God reached down to our lowest point. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. Just as an aside, it's interesting that Daniel 9.27, when this covenant is established with Antichrist and the, uh, the, the Jews and surrounding nations and so on, we're told, he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, this period of seven years, and in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. Literally, he shall cause the sacrifices and the meal offering to cease. So these are the things that will be re-established at that point. The third offering, this peace offering. Chuck Mizzler says there will be striking similarities with the burnt offering and also sharp contrasts as well. All bloody sacrifices represent Christ in his character of an expiation. The difference here is that this class of offerings focuses more on the results and the reception of Christ's sacrifice rather than the manner of it. This offering will point to the peace which brings all believers into communion, or koinonia, the Greek word, with the Father by the Holy Spirit through the Lord Jesus Christ. So this time we're told it's a male or a female offering that's allowed, uh, possibly hinting a gentleness in there. The burnt offering was all placed on the altar, In the peace offering, only a portion is specified. It was to be the choice portion, the fat, the inward parts, and the hidden riches, and so on. The priest received the breast and the shoulder, and the one offering ate the remainder in God's house. That's why this beautiful picture of fellowship going on here. Some uh, refer to this kind of like as a, a, a celebration, kind of a barbecue type celebration, where you'd offer this offering, And the priests would have their part, but then in God's house you would enjoy the rest of this. God's provision as well. God was the host, the sinner was the guest. The sin offering, 
In chapter 4, really takes us through to chapter 5, 13. Well, Isaiah 53, we're told. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. This is the offering we're speaking of. He shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. So we read the Lord, this is Leviticus 4 verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, If a soul sin through ignorance. Well, the reality is, all of us are there. Although it says, if a soul sin, the reality is, it should, in a sense, we could translate that, or transliterate it, when you sin. Because Romans 3.23 tells us, for all have sinned, and come short of the glory of God. Chuck Smith used to say, a man is not a horse thief because he steals a horse. A man steals a horse because he's a horse thief. Just think about that for a moment. You see, really, what what Chuck Smith was saying there is that actually it's the heart that determines the action. And the problem is we are sinners. We will sin. There's four sinners identified specifically here. There's the priests, the whole congregation, the rulers of the people, and then the common people as well. The various types, we have a young offering, and Jesus, of course, was somewhere under 33 years old. A bullock, which speaks of a servant without blemish. Again, Jesus knew no sin. And this laying on of hands, this designation of the one to take your place. The blood is sprinkled seven times towards the veil. Again, seven speaking of complete. The veil is that which speaks of separation between us and God. Again, the veil in the tabernacle, which obviously is torn at the time of the crucifixion. The shed blood is complete in addressing the issue of our separation from God. The blood was also to be put on the horns of the altar. Horns speaking of strength and power. So in a sense, what we're seeing here is the blood put upon or yielded to the strength of the Lord. The life being surrendered to the mercy, strength and sufficiency of God. And then some of the blood also will be poured on the ground. And there's a very interesting study you can do on why blood was poured on the ground. We haven't time for that this morning. And then we've given some of the details you should take off from it. The fat of the bullock for the sin offering. The fat that covers the inwards and all the fat that is upon the inwards. And the two kidneys and the fat that is upon them, which is by the flanks. And the call above the liver with the kidneys you shall take away. Why all this detail? Well, it all speaks of just so many wonderful things that we see. The fat really speaks of the best that can be offered. Kidneys are that which purifies the blood. In, a, in Hebrew typology, it refers to the seat of the conscience. Liver also is used for detoxification. All these things that are being presented here. In Psalm 7 verse 9, it's interesting, we have this word reigns mentioned there. Oh, let the wicked, wickedness of the wicked come to an end. 
but establish the just for the righteous God tries the hearts and reigns. Now you and I think, well, what on earth does reigns mean? If you use a modern translation, you may translate that differently. But in the King James, we have it as reigns. Literally, it's kidneys. God tries the heart and the kidneys. Well, how do we understand that? Well, what it's saying is God examines the heart and the conscience. That's the import of what it's saying here, because of the way that the Jewish mindset understood these things. In regard to Christ, Christ was offered in our place, and for him both his heart and his conscience were pure. Our liver and kidneys, of course, could never cleanse us. Our own liver and kidneys, they deal with that which is natural, but they can't deal with the spiritual. Isaiah 46 makes it very clear that the best we can offer, the very best, is like filthy rags before a holy God. Leviticus drives home the enormous goal for the incredible price that was paid. Another thing that's just to mention here is that this offering, we're told, was to be carried forth without the camp unto a clean place. So this offering was to be offered and they were to carry the the residue, the remainder of this sin offering outside the camp. And notice what we're told. A couple of key things here. Outside the camp, burn him on wood with fire again. And in Hebrews just unpacks this. He says, For the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest of sin are burned without the camp. Hebrews speaking here of the sin offering. And he says, Wherefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. Jesus was taken outside of the city wall. That's the city wall. And this is Calvary. Jesus was taken, this is the temple area, Jesus was taken out of the city, outside of the camp and was put upon the wood and consumed there for us. And so this last of these offerings, and hopefully this is just a a bit of a taster for you, I really encourage you just to dig in. There's plenty of good commentaries available to dig into some of these these things. Dave on Thursday is going to take you through looking at these offerings again. And I just, just, just try and understand. There is so much here that speaks of what Christ has accomplished for us. And again, reminding us of the horror of sin and the way that we should be towards sin. This, by the way, um, takes us up to actually from chapter 5.14 up to chapter 6, verse 7 um, in this final offering, this trespass offering. The sin offering, again, is the effect of our sin before God. The trespass offering very much is speaking of the effect of our sin before man or on other people. Sin really is missing the mark, the parameters that God has set. And interestingly enough, again, as I said, there was variable offerings that could be offered, the sin offering. But the trespass offering, this crossing the line, this... um, it's going beyond a certain point. And a ram was the only prescribed offering. Again, the effect that our sin has on others is incredible. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, If a soul commit a trespass and sin through ignorance, 
in the holy things of the Lord. It's interesting, isn't it, that a lot of people would claim ignorance as a kind of a, a get-out card. And God says, no, that doesn't count. Then as you bring for his presence unto the Lord a ram without blemish. Again, we have these details given. This whole idea, we see Christ in all of these things. And he shall make amends, and notice this, this is talking about the restitution and everything else, for the harm that he has done. Oh, how much our sin affects others that we just don't even think about. We don't see it. But we shall make uh, um, make amends for the harm that he has done and the holy things, and you know, to add this fifth part thereunto, and uh, goes on from there. We'll look more on that uh, for those that are able to come on Thursday. That uh, brings us to an end for this morning. Just please, I encourage you to study these things because there is so much that speaks of just the wonderful grace and mercy of Jesus our Saviour. And again, it should just drive home for us how abhorrent sin is before a holy God. Let's bow our hearts. Well, Heavenly Father, we just thank you and praise you now for your word. We thank you that we see these details. And Lord, although a lot of this portion of your word is bloodthirsty, it's gory, it's quite unpleasant. Oh Lord, how it speaks of sin and how our holy God sees sin. And how the blood has to be shed to atone And so, Lord, we thank you now, this morning, that upon that wooden cross erected in Judea some 2,000 years ago, the blood of a spotless lamb was shed for us. Help us, Lord, to be mindful always of just how horrible and repulsive sin is in your eyes. And, Lord, how even the smallest sin would still need atonement. There would still need blood to be shed. And so, Father, please impress these things upon our hearts and minds. May we live a life that is set apart for you. Father, your word says that we should be holy because you are holy. Lord, as a church, as a fellowship of believers, oh Lord, have your way amongst us. Work in our lives. Make us holy, we pray. Oh, just change our thinking in every area. Lord, may we be like as that burnt offering, offered totally, unreservedly, every part consumed, that we may bring glory to you. Because, Lord, this is our reasonable service. And we ask these things in your precious, wonderful name, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.